Okay, here we go. Twilight Part 1, my first commentary. Just a little personal background to get things started. I remember when this episode first aired, my family and I were on vacation in Florida. And they're sort of the early-to-bed-early-to-rise type. And when this episode aired, Cartoon Network aired as part of a Super Day marathon. They showed both parts of Apocalypse Now, then both parts of Legacy, and then finally both parts of this episode. And I believe Twilight was on from 10 to 11. And so my parents had gone to bed, and what I did is we had a big TV in the hotel room. I turned off all the lights, closed all the blinds, did everything I could to make it as as dark and as quiet as I could, and then pumped up the volume on this, and man, it was such a cinematic experience. The widescreen aspect ratio, which Cartoon Network was sort of finicky about for a long time, but they they aired it first run with this in widescreen, and man, that was something to see. I remember just thinking, man, this is an incredible improvement over season one, everything from the the art direction to the music the acting on the parts of George Newbern and and many of the other actors just seemed like, it would, like they were taken up to a whole new level, bringing back some of the characters from past series like Brainiac and Darkseid and Calabac really just made the whole thing feel like a big event. There we have Orion, voiced here by Ron Perlman back in Superman the Animated Series and his first and only appearance in Apocalypse Now was voiced by Steve Sandor. Not quite sure why they recast him, but certainly Ron Perlman is. If you're going to recast somebody, Ron Perlman's the way to go. Even the CG in this episode seemed greatly improved over what we'd seen in the past. I remember thinking that at the time because people had complained so venomously about the CG in Season 1. Incoming, guys. And how great is Michael Ironside? I'm probably going to say that several times, but really. A little bit of blood there, and they didn't get away with that very often. I think they can kind of get away with it on Darkseid, because he bleeds like black... some sort of black magma kind of substance... High Father had appeared back in Apocalypse Now as well during the during Mother Box's little holographic history lesson of Apocalypse New Genesis, but didn't speak. Here he finally gets his first lines. Dark Side's theme can be heard several times throughout this episode. The establishing shot of Apocalypse a few minutes earlier, and then right there when he makes his appearance on the Watchtower, when he appears having betrayed Superman. My mother can't get enough of this shot. I don't know what it is about it that she loves so much. Just the way the music comes up before you can even see anything. And this just sort of the, the awe of having these characters walk towards you, just in silhouette. I was never that crazy about these titles. I guess they grew on me to a certain extent. That's a great shot. How can you not love that? 
So now we get the first big hints or whatever you want to call them about Hawk Girl's true backstory here where she misses Thanagar, which is probably true, being on deep cover. I'm sure she doesn't she's not in contact with him very much and certainly doesn't get to go back there. But here where John says you miss your home world very much and she whirls around like, What? And then he reveals that in fact he didn't read her mind but was simply observing her mannerisms. She's afraid that he's read her mind and determined her true intentions. Love the little flutter of his cape there. It's a small thing, but... Now, back in Season 1, Bruce Tim has said repeatedly that he was... They, they were trying to stay away from bringing back characters and villains and so on from their past series for as long as they could to try to let the Justice League series establish its own identity, but I think he realized that when the time for this episode came around, they needed a big event to start off Season 2, and what better way than Darkseid? Here, uh, Desaad is voiced by René Aubergenois, perhaps best known to modern audiences as Odo from Star Trek Deep Space Nine. While he's not the actor that voiced Desaad in his appearance in Superman, I believe that was Robert Morse, in a odd twist of fate or casting, René Aubergenois actually voiced Desaad way back in the old Super Friends series, where, of course, the character was considerably less nuanced. But... I'm sure when they decided to recast, they figured, why not? René Aubergenois had appeared in several of their productions before. He was back in season one, he was Kanjar Rowe and Gallia Zed, and in Blackest Night, and even all the way back to On Leather Wings in Batman the Animated Series, he was Dr. March, back in the very, very first episode. Brainiac's theme. So here's Hot Girl's cover story that she was a detective, was hit by some sort of fancy weapon that transported her here and she can't get back. Of course, her story doesn't hold up too well because we've never seen her do any detective work. I remember the original press materials for the show stated that she's a detective that rivals Batman, and some fans on the internet said, wait a minute, I haven't seen any evidence of that. And of course, they were right to call them on it because it was all a lie. Certainly not the first time that Just Us League joke has been made. I'm sure that joke's about 50 years old. I wonder how many takes the actors had to go through before they said boom tube properly and not boob tube. Even Bruce Tim made that mistake on a commentary recently. I love that effect, though. I gotta say, I'll, I'll do props to George Newburn. I... Back when the show first aired, I didn't really pay that much attention to the voice acting. I mean, I, obviously you're sort of aware of it, but unless you really think about it, the performances oftentimes don't jump out at you because they're they're very they're very subtle in some ways. But and so in that way, George Newbern didn't really impress me too much in season one. But having watched more episodes of Superman by the time I saw this, I was really hoping he would step it up and. Boy, did he. 
Even just these small scenes here, I can really feel the venom in his voice. I had had it spoiled for me that... Bum-bum-bum, Brainiac was going to be the villain in this episode. Which is too bad, because that would have been a really great reveal. Is Brainiac's ship going all the way back to um, Stolen Memories, Superman the Animated Series. That always struck me as a little cornball. You can't mean... Dot, dot, dot. Love the lighting on that one. So now we have the infamous scene where Superman doesn't want to help Darkseid and Batman marches up to him and reads him the riot act and acts a bit of a acts like a bit of a jerk. And I remember when I first saw this scene and I wasn't the only one to comment on it. I was just getting these flashbacks to World's Finest, the three parter where the two characters first met. Just all that old chemistry and all that old antagonism just came flooding back and it in season one it really hadn't been there to the extent that Superman was even giving Batman hugs in the season, season finale of season one. But none of that here. It, this really brought them back to where the relationship should have progressed from from the, from from the very first episode, but didn't really. So now, you're, now we're back at the gate, as it were, and from here on the relationship evolves in a very gradual, very realistic way, I always felt, as opposed to the as opposed to season one, where all of a sudden they were just best buds. Here we have a protracted fight scene here, where Brainiac just blows crap up for like five minutes. Michael Dorn is Calabac. I don't know who originally had that design, Andrea Romano, I suppose, but it's a great bit of casting, too. The blur effect on these little robot things is probably a little superfluous, but whatever. So yeah, it just goes on for a while, doesn't it? These these two parties were actually actually felt kind of padded in retrospect when you go back and look at them having seen a lot more of Justice League Unlimited. Things are going to pick up here. This episode, it's funny because in a lot of ways it was, well, it, it probably still is, it, truth be told, my favorite episode, but that's probably largely due to just the impact it had on me when it first aired, and not, in all fairness, due to it actually being the episode of the highest quality, that honor would probably have to go to a better world or or um epilogue or, or something like that. But uh I remember after this episode aired I was just I was just so hyped because it, it was just it just blew season one out of the water and was really like the first time I felt like I was watching the Justice League show I'd always wanted to see. And uh, I was so excited that I couldn't sleep for like two hours after this aired. I went straight to bed, but I couldn't sleep. It was like all I could talk about for the rest of the week were on vacation. I probably drove my family nuts. little reference there to the Batman Beyond episode, The Call, where the boom tubes make Batman nauseous. 
They took the writers took a bit of flack actually for Batman spouting too many one-liners in this episode, but I always felt it was perfectly in character. This episode was really the the first that I can think of because he didn't go back in time in the Savage Time. He didn't go to other planets in season one. This is really the first time he was a fish out of water, so to speak, and completely out of his element. In season one, when he appeared, sure, he was in these larger-than-life situations, but he always seemed completely in control. Even when he was maybe on the losing side of a battle, he always seemed completely in control. But here, he's just uh, he's just way out, of his, way out of his element, and he knows it, and he's, just, he's every bit the smart-ass when he wants to be, and he's just commenting on the absurdity of it all, and and that's the way I took it, so I found I always thought his lines here were, were very, very funny. He whips out one of those exploding batarangs that he only seems to use on Justice League and never in his own series. I guess because they would disintegrate the criminals and Commissioner Gordon would then have to have a chat with him. In a second here we're going to get... Uh, oh, here's where it looks like Wonder Woman's lasso breaks, which really should be impossible. It looks like the thing snaps it when I guess all it really does is just undo the knot. But here in a second we're going to see the introduction of Forager, played by Brainiac's voice actor Corey Burton. Uh, in a little bit of a continuity gaffe retrospectively, he uh, he appeared at the tail end of Apocalypse Now Part 2 as part of the uh, New Genesis invasion force that was there to repel Darkseid, and he was there alongside Mr. Miracle and Big Barda and Light Ray and Orion. When, according to this episode, he's just a lowly bug who, even if he had happened to have met those other characters, certainly wouldn't have been part of any large-scale force being spearheaded by them. They would have considered him to be below that. So whether that was, if you if you want to try to come up with an explanation, whether that was a different bug an apocalypse now, or or whether he was a conscript there or something, I don't know, but it doesn't make a ton of sense. That's straight out of Kirby right there. Here, Batman's channeling Jaws. Wonder Woman just looks at him. <laughs> I love, by the, I, I, I talked right over it, but the moment where Batman helps Wonder Woman up and he holds her hand for just a little bit too long. He's helped her up. They're standing there. He's not letting go, not letting go. And then finally he lets go. So I'm not sure. I'm sure that was maybe just maybe some storyboard artist having fun or the director. or I doubt it was in the script, but plays up the Wonder Woman-Batman relationship that had begun all the way back in The Brave and the Bold. funny because Superman never seemed to have this much trouble with Brainiac back in Superman, the animated series, and then later on when they're on a ship, he's taking them out like nobody's business, but I guess that's just one really good force field. Batman, oh, <laughs> Batman just looks so indignant, having been carried around by Wonder Woman like that. He's just like, oh, God, set me down, please. No time for anything else. Let's just find Orion and get the hell out of here. Light Ray, again, um, 
appeared back in Superman the Animated Series in a non-speaking capacity, his given voice here for the first time. It's a little bit of background on the New Gods for, for people who might not know a lot about it, having only been exposed to it on the cartoons and not the comics. For a long time, Jack Kirby, even though he really started his career uh, in terms of getting a lot of exposure at, at DC, he's perhaps best known for his work at Marvel, at co-creating Fantastic Four and Thor and Captain America and the X-Men. I'm sure I'm forgetting lots of other characters. The Hulk. But um, in the 70s, DC lured him back. A little bit of Batman's theme right there really quick. DC lured him back, uh, promising that he could you know, write and draw as many titles as he saw fit and would have complete control over them. He wouldn't have to filter any of his ideas through an editor. And apparently that was enough to entice him back. And so he envisioned this huge, sprawling epic, which has been sort of titled The Fourth World by uh, by fans since then. I'm not sure if it was ever actually called that at the time. And it was made up of three interlocking titles. New Gods, which starred Orion. Mr. Miracle, which obviously starred Mr. Miracle. And The Forever People, which starred a group of characters that you see appearing at the tail end of Twilight Part Two, but haven't really had any other exposure in, in the series. And the the three series while they were somewhat separate, all dealt with New Genesis and Apocalypse in various ways and were interconnected in, in, a, in a loose way and, and sometimes in a surprisingly tight way. And the series are cons- probably considered to be classics these days, but at the time they didn't sell terribly well and DC decided to cancel them partway through their run, even though Kirby has said since then that he knew where he was going and had an ending envisioned and so on they never got to. A lot of people have said that he was really just making it up as it, as he went along, but either way, the series were cancelled before he could get a chance to finish the story. And so much the better for modern fans, because if he had been allowed to finish the story, odds are a lot of these characters wouldn't be around anymore, because there's supposed to be this prophecy that Orion will kill Darkseid, and... If that had been allowed to happen, then we wouldn't have Darkseid anymore in the comics. So, it was fortuitous for modern fans that these characters are still around. They've been brought back in a little TMS explosion there. They've been brought back in a lot of other series since then. The, the characters keep people keep trotting them out and trying to give them a fresh coat of paint. John Byrne, Walt Simonson, even Grant Morrison recently. But. Uh, I think most people would agree that the best treatment of the characters outside of Kirby himself, and possibly even when you include Kirby, is their portrayal right here in in, uh, the DC Animated Universe. really distills everything that was great about the characters and the concepts, and makes it seem fresh. I guess I'd better go pick them up. It's a small thing, but I love that little thing there where he shields Hawk Girl using his own body. I can't be the only one every time uh, I see Michael Ironside in anything. I just have to sort of shake my fist at the screen and go, Dark Side.
uh, Darkseid has a plan. That's a great shot of Apocalypse, too. And I gotta say, I love the music in this scene. This is Chris Carter, I believe. I'm sure it's synthetic, but... I don't really care. That, that choir sounds great either way. And the little, I'll bet the farm on it comment. I don't know if it was just, if it's uh, intentional or not, but of course, he did grow up on a farm. So, although the other two characters don't know that. I'm not sure if that was written in there as sort of a, a double meaning or not. Sean and Hawkgirl are practicing synchronized steering, apparently. Hmm. Three equally spaced holes. Coming up here, the first time I saw it, I always thought this was an animation mistake. If you look through the view screens in a second, it looks like they're outside in a blue sky. Right there. Because the meteors look like, or the asteroids look like clouds, and the sky looks blue because of the, the beam around them. It's actually just the glow of the beam and not, obviously, a sky. And the big reveal, the Brainiac's head. To be continued. So yeah, I mean, for a long time this was my favorite episode. Probably still is. It's just, uh, everything was just so ramped up from season one. and Just firing on all cylinders and they just couldn't get enough of it. But, uh, Some great animation, too. DR Movie really became my favorite animation studio later in the series, but Coca really knocked it out of the park here. Okay, thanks for listening.